You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. All right, you guys ready to uh, get into a study this morning? So we have been in a series called Genesis, In the Beginning, God. And we have been going verse by verse through Genesis, but we are going to take a brief hiatus and go to the New Testament. I want you guys to open up to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. If you need a Bible this morning, go ahead and raise your hand, and one of our awesome ushers will be happy to hand you a Bible. It will be a lot more enjoyable if you can follow along with us in the Word this morning. John is the fourth gospel in the New Testament, so about a little over two-thirds of the way into your Bible. If you're new to the Bible, no problem. There's also a table of context. You're going to want to make sure you go to the Gospel of John and not 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John. We're going to be in John chapter 9 and 10 this morning, and we are going to be looking at this sermon titled, Abundant Life. Do you have an abundant life? I believe we have an incredible abundant life. When we consider what we've been given, when we consider what Christ has done, we are going to see how he comes to give life abundantly. When we are grateful, when we have a heart of gratitude, It allows us to see the work that God is doing in our life in all circumstances, not just what we consider good circumstances. So let's pray, and then we'll get into our text this morning. Father in heaven, it is a joy to be able to be gathered like this. Literally hundreds of believers, maybe even some unbelievers with us this morning, still deciding if Jesus is their Lord and Savior or not. We get to worship you, to sing praises to your name, to open the word of God, the holy scriptures, that which is true and is your voice to us. Lord, may we have humble hearts to receive what you would speak to us today. Would you remind us of the abundance that we have been given and the life that we don't just look forward to in heaven with you, but that you have provided for us now. Lord, I am a sinful man who is going to teach a perfect word from your scriptures, which means that cannot be done in my own strength. Would you allow your spirit to speak through me this morning? Would you allow your spirit to be present in our hearts and minds so that we may live out the truth of the good news that we hear today? In Jesus' name. And everybody said? It was dark. It was always dark. And even though this man could feel the sun on his back, even though he could hear people chattering and talking all around him, even though he knew that the busyness was on this Sabbath day, people moving from one place to another to get to the temple, for this man, it was always dark. Arm extended, growing weary. Would somebody put in a shekel or a leptin or something of value into this beggar's cup? 
Would someone provide some loving kindness and hand this man some bread so that he could eat? Or would it be a grumbling stomach again like it had been many times before? Well, there was no money. There was no bread that morning. Just the condescending words of a man passing by. He was used to it by this point. His heart sank when he heard the words, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or this man's parents that he was born blind. He was a spectacle for everybody else to see. But for him, there was only darkness. But then it came. A voice he had never heard but somehow sounded familiar. Powerful, but not loud. Words spoken with authority, but without an air of arrogance. And the voice said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. There was still darkness, but this man was overcome with some kind of hope he had never felt. His mind furiously processing. Was this a rabbi, a teacher of the law of Moses, not condemning him for his current circumstances, for being a beggar born blind? And what was this that he was saying about the works of God being revealed in him? And then the voice spoke again. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Still darkness, but something stirring in this man. No longer a hope just for some money, just for some bread. But something welling up inside of him, causing him to hope for something beyond just today. What? Did somebody just first the smell and then the warm, wet feel of dirt and clay upon his eyes, gentle hands anointing him. He was too stunned to speak, too confused to move. So he just sat like a statue and listened. Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Oh, that voice. He couldn't explain it. Compelling him to obedience. It was his eyes that was touched. But it was his heart that was bursting in him. As others took his hands, his feet moved swiftly to the pool. And he immersed himself, wiping the clay from his eyes. No longer darkness. But for the first time, he could see. Isn't the gospel amazing? John chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. This is the story of the blind man. And here's what I love about why this is recorded. This is historical. This is an actual event. But it wasn't just recorded for history's sake. This was recorded to reveal a deeper truth. And here is the truth about this word from John chapter 9. That this man's physical condition is the perfect picture of our spiritual condition. We are the blind man. Think about all of us born into darkness. Born into sin. Unable to see on our own. 
an inability for us to lift ourselves out of that darkness, that blindness, not knowing the light from the dark, truth from untruth. And yet Jesus comes and he speaks something powerful about this man that is true for each one of us today. You were created to reveal the works of God. You were created to reveal the works of God, which means no matter where you've been in your life, the color of your skin, your education or lack thereof, blue collar, white collar, no job, old, young, doesn't matter. The sin that you've committed. You were created to reveal the works of God. What incredible words to be spoken to a man who had only been seen for his disposition of darkness for his entire life. A beggar at best, holding a cup daily, hoping that someone would just drop enough in to make it through another day. And Jesus comes and says, oh, this man was not born blind because of sin. He was born blind so that I could reveal the works of God in him. How encouraging. What kind of hope does that give you? No matter where you sit in this room, that God desires to instill his character in you, to build you as a disciple of Jesus Christ in order to be a light to a very dark world. This story continues and it reveals our story even more deeply. Consider this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It's on the screen, so I want us to read it one loud voice. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. This is in the New Living Translation. The New King James would say, for we are his workmanship. If you're a carpenter and you have a shop, when people walk in, what's the first thing they want you to see? Your best work, your most prized armoire, sanded and glistening with the sealant and with the stains so that you go, oh, we are in the right place. And here's what amazes me. This is how God sees his people. How many of you woke up this morning and went, now that's, that's a good looking masterpiece right there. Anybody this morning? Me either. And it's good that you don't. That's not what I'm encouraging. But don't miss what God does through his son, Jesus Christ, and what we are transformed into. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It says that we were dead in our sins and in our trespasses, following Satan himself. But God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, for by grace we have been saved, culminating in through Christ Jesus, you are his masterpiece. That blind man sitting on the side of the road in beggar's clothing, thinking nothing of his life and most people thinking nothing of his life. God's masterpiece for the works of God to be revealed in him. Wow. Consider your life. 
in this story. We continue. Verse 6 says that when Jesus spat on the ground, he made mud and put it on the man's eyes. This is how Christ often gets a hold of us. And you're like, I haven't had mud on my eyes, and that's good. But I know this. God works in odd and mysterious ways and in strange circumstances to get to our hearts and minds, doesn't he? Each one of you here who is a follower of Jesus Christ has a different story about when Christ found you and plucked you out of that pit, where you were, what you were doing, how you were feeling, how close you were to packing it in. He goes outside the box to pursue us. He loves us so deeply that he pursues us to the end of ourselves and meets us in the street as we are begging not even knowing exactly what we need and him knowing all along that it's a savior that we need. Verse seven, we are called to respond. Jesus gives a command. He tells the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And notice what it says in verse seven. So he went and washed and came back seeing, meaning it was Jesus's initiating work to bring sight to this man's blindness It's Jesus is initiating work to bring salvation into our life. It's not something we can do in our own power. It's not something we can earn. It's not something we deserve. And yet he commands us to walk in obedience to him. And it's what the blind man does. He goes and he washes. And it's this incredible picture of the waters of baptism. Here at the Mission Church, we believe in a believer's baptism, which means you don't get baptized to be saved. You get baptized because you're saved. Because of the transforming work that God has inwardly done in your heart, we outwardly represent that through baptism. And this man goes into the waters of baptism in obedience to God's command, and he comes out seeing for the first time. The narrative continues. And it only gets better. Look at verses 8 and 9. Therefore, the neighbors and those who had previously seen that he was blind said, Is this the one, he who sat and baked? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. And he said, I am he. This is the story of what happens when Christ comes in and transforms our life. We're still the same looking person. We still have the same body type. We may still live at the same address, but people start to wonder, dude, what happened to you? What's going on in your life? You used to glory in these things. You you used to like to participate in these things over here. And now something has changed. Not unrecognizable physically, but such a transformation that takes place by the power of God and the character of Christ in our life that people start to wonder, are you really the same person? But this man's life did not get easier when he regained his sight. And how many of us, when we came to Christ, when Christ plucked us out of that dark place and gave us spiritual eyes to see, how many of us, our lives got harder, became more difficult, we were held accountable We had to repent when we messed up, when we sinned. We had to go, hey, listen, I'm so sorry I said that. I'm so sorry I did that. And for this man, his life gets harder quickly. As a matter of fact, 
Once his neighbors recognize that this was the man that was blind, they bring the Pharisees in, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and they go, hey, this man was blind from birth, and now he can see, and the magnifying glasses come out. He's interrogated. He's poked. He's prodded. Who did this to you? A man named Jesus. What do you say about this man? I say that he was a prophet. How can a prophet be a sinner? How can a sinner open the eyes of the blind? You're a fraud. We don't believe you. We're going to call your parents. That's in the scripture. That actually happens. If you ever had that Sunday school teacher, this is where it came from. I'm calling your parents. And the parents come. And the Pharisees say, is this your son? Was he really born blind? How were his eyes open? And the parents say, this is our son. He was born blind. How his eyes were opened, we don't know. But for goodness sakes, he's a man. He is of age. Speak to him. And the scripture says they said this because they were afraid that if the Jews declared Jesus is the Messiah, they would be cast out of the synagogue. What I love about this man's response that this is not someone teaching him how to respond. This isn't because he listened to a sermon and went, well, my pastor said I have to respond this way. This is because of a personal experience that was real for him. He knew he was blind and now he could see. There was no way anyone was going to take that away from him. There was no way that someone was going to say that Jesus had not transformed his life. It was his. And when pressed by the Pharisees, Verse 24 says, so they, meaning the religious leaders, called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory, which simply means renounce this business about Jesus. Just give glory to God in general. We know that this man, who is this man? Man is Jesus, that this man is a sinner. All listen to his response. He answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. You can't take it from me. That was my experience with Jesus. No one can tell me otherwise. And this is what it looks like to stand firm in your faith. Because it's not just a religion. It's not just following rules. It's not just because your parents said so. It's because this man was holding tightly to the Savior who brought him sight when he was born blind. Do you see the picture of your own salvation? Do you see the story of your own life? But it gets better. The Pharisees grow more angry. They revile him in verse 28 and they say, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, meaning Jesus, we do not know where he is from. And now here's the beauty of what's happening. And it's happening fast in this story. But even a man who is in kindergarten in following Jesus, his eyes have been opened in such a profound way that he knew he lived in darkness and now he lives in the light. That notice his response, standing firm in faith, but also proclaiming truth 
And who is he proclaiming truth to? Oh, the Pharisees. And you know they like that. Verse 29, excuse me, verse 30. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from. Yet he has opened my eyes. If we put that into our own words, this man would be saying, I know where he's from. He's from God. He's from heaven. No one else can open the eyes of the blind. No one else can take a heart steeped in wickedness and selfishness and sin and give it a desire to walk in the wisdom of God's ways according to his word. No one can do that except God himself. The man continues. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who is born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Profound truth from just a baby. Profound truth. Speaking to religious leaders. We have been given sight. And it is God's word that speaks the truth to us. So that we can grow in our knowledge, in our understanding, and putting faith into practice both inside the church walls and outside the church walls. But verse 34 says, they answered him and said, you were completely born in sins and you are teaching us. And they cast him out. What an opportunity for discouragement for this man. Literally just had the best moment of his life. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Don't raise your hand if it has. But if you've ever rejoiced over something and your friend was jealous and was like, that's the worst. You want someone to come alongside you and do what? Get excited. Celebrate. This man has just been given sight. He was born blind. And what do the Pharisees do? They throw him out. They cast him out. They excommunicate him. He has nowhere to go. Even his own parents were afraid of their leadership. What an opportunity for discouragement. What a time to begin questioning, was this, was this real? I mean, who am I? Well, why, why would God actually love me? Why would he actually do something like that for me? Why would he choose me? And notice what happens. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, I love that about our Savior. We don't find Jesus, Jesus finds us. And when there is opportunity for discouragement, when people want to come along and say, hey, I know, I know who you were. I knew what you did. You're not changed. Oh, Jesus finds us. He reminds us. He points us back to himself. Look at what he says. Do you believe in the son of God? And the man answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? What a great question. I love that Jesus asks a question and then this guy goes, who is he? Tell me who he is because I'm going to believe you. You healed me. I experienced that. And Jesus doesn't play coy. Verse 37, you have both seen him and it is he 
who is talking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Wow. What a great story. What a true story. Not only for this blind man in John chapter 9, but for us. This is our story. In some version, this is what Christ has come into our life and what he has done and what he is doing. And here's what we can know, that Jesus came to give spiritual sight to a blind world. Jesus came to give spiritual sight to a blind world. Here's why that's so important. It should develop in us a sense of compassion. A compassion for who? Church. A compassion for those who are still blind. Because who did that used to be? That was me. That was you. That was us collectively. And it should give us a compassion to go, oh, Lord, would you open the eyes of the blind? What can they do to see on their own? And here's the beauty of what God is doing with this man, that the works of God would be revealed in him. You think he went and told his story? You think his story didn't travel through Jerusalem pretty quickly? And as he gives glory back to Jesus, as he worships Jesus, just by sharing his own experience, what is he automatically doing? The works of God are being revealed in him. And it may be that God chooses to use that man or that woman or you or me to be a catalyst in which the transforming work of Jesus Christ comes in and grabs somebody's heart and gives spiritual sight to those in darkness. What an incredible story. Jesus then says very profound words in verse 39. He says, for judgment, I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and those who say they see or see may be made blind. Jesus speaks some powerful words for judgment. I have come. Hey, this isn't all ponies and rainbows. There is a right side and there is a left side. There is black and there is white. There is Jesus as Lord and Savior. And there is an eternity in hell for worshiping anything but him. For judgment I have come. But to bring sight to the blind. For those who go, I am a sinner. I am blind. I am steeped in wickedness. I cannot help myself. I need a Savior. Jesus gives sight to the blind. For those who say, I have no sin. I have no need. I can do this on my own. I've got my company. I've got my bank account. I've got my cars. It is like they are shutting their eyes to the very light that's before them and saying, I see. I see. Verse 40. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him, meaning Jesus, heard these words and said to Jesus, are we blind also? To which they knew the answer to their own question. Sneering at Jesus. Poking at him. Puffing out their spirituality, their positions, their pomp, their title. 
And then Jesus speaks again. Jesus says, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see. Therefore, your sin remains. Now, Jesus is going to begin some dialogue with this group of religious leaders. And it's important for us to remember, in the primary context of what we are reading, Jesus is speaking to religious leaders or specifically to false teachers. And we find false teachers everywhere. We find them in politics. We find them in corporate America. We find them in families. We even find them in the church. And here's the beauty of what Jesus is doing. He is speaking directly to the religious leaders who will be held accountable. And for this blind man, Jesus doesn't just leave him after giving him sight. Now he desires to give him spiritual discernment. Who should you follow? Who should you be wary of? How do you know the difference between a false teacher and one who points you to Jesus Christ? God desires for us to have spiritual discernment so that we may walk in truth in the men and women that we follow so that we are not led astray, led down a path of destruction. Jesus continues in chapter 10, verse 1, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. For they know his what? His voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus is doing something profound. He is taking a common illustration known as an allegory, something that everyone would have understood from that time period, and he's using it to create a deeper spiritual truth, to reveal something. And remember, he's speaking to the religious leaders. And this was an agrarian society back in Jesus' time. So they understood flocks and herds and crops and reaping and sowing. And I consider myself agrarian. I grew a tomato plant this year that produced four tomatoes. This season, we have kept four out of six chickens alive. Therefore, I feel like I understand agrarian society. But for those of us who don't understand agrarian society... Uh, here's a picture which is worth a thousand words. Jesus mentions that he is the door. The door to a sheepfold. That's an ancient sheepfold. It's a wall high enough to keep coyotes or wolves or other critters out. And it would be sometimes that the shepherd would put like a gate or some kind of wooden door there. But do you know what usually went? In that crevice, the shepherd himself would sit in the doorway so that no sheep would get out without him first leading ahead. And no enemy, prowler, something that wanted to take those sheep's life could get in because the shepherd 
was the door to the sheepfold. So that when Jesus says in verse 1 of chapter 10, most assuredly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. We picture someone jumping over the wall. A thief simply means someone who is stealthy and cunning, who tries to sneak in and use Christianese and the right words, but leads you down a path that glorifies self instead of glorifying Christ. A robber is someone who is simply openly violent, not afraid to be seen, but just comes in to kill and destroy. When we consider what Jesus is saying, look at verse 2. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is referring to himself as what? He is the shepherd. He is the door. And he is speaking to the religious leaders. And I'm sure this was an uncomfortable conversation. I'm sure there were crowds of people listening to Jesus. And Jesus calls the Pharisees, these religious leaders, what? Thieves and robbers. And if you know anything about the religious leaders of Jesus' day, that would not have sat well with them. They are the instigators and the ones who plan out Jesus' crucifixion and death. And this is one of the building blocks to that point. Jesus begins to reveal clearly who he is. But look at verse 6 with me. Jesus used this illustration. What kind of illustration was it? Agrarian. It's one they could understand. They all got it. But notice this. But they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. In other words, the Pharisees could not what? Oh, they could not see. Because only through the door, which is Jesus Christ, is their spiritual sight to understanding that he and he alone is the good shepherd. Yes, Jesus raises up under shepherds, men and women who lead according to his word and his ways. But there are many who want to sneak in the sheepfold. There is a difference between eating the sheep and feeding the sheep, is there not? And yet, oftentimes it is difficult to discern which is happening. And for this blind man who is now given sight, in his young sight, God wants to help equip him to know who to follow. And how to discern. If you've got a pen or a pencil with you, I want you to circle a few words in these first six verses. Circle the word voice in verses 3, 4, and 5. The word voice in verses 3, 4, and 5. Um, I, I don't know anything about flocks and herds, so I had to do quite a bit of research this week. And I came across this video in which there's probably about 40 to 50 sheep on a hillside. And they bring in a guy who's not the shepherd. And he goes, nah, just like that. And the sheep literally don't respond. They just continue eating. And then they bring in a female who's not the shepherd. And she goes, meh. And the sheep literally do nothing. They just continue eating. And then the real shepherd of these sheep comes in and he goes, ah. And all the sheep look up instantly. And you hear the bleeding of sheep. And they all start running to this man. It's incredible. I was like, this is the easiest allegory ever. I get it, Jesus. I get it. 
And that's the beauty of our Savior. Is when we have spiritual eyes to see, which is his work, not our own, we hear his voice. Now, the argument can be made, hey, this blind man had a literal encounter with Jesus. Like Jesus was there in the flesh and he touched his eyes and I don't get that. No, you get the entire word of God instead. The Old Testament and the New Testament. This is the voice of God. And by all things, test them with the scriptures. If someone goes, says, go here or do this or believe this, where should we be going? Back to the word. Is this the voice of God? For his sheep know his voice. And we know his voice when we read. And God gives us understanding. And we begin to put into practice his word. Circle the word follow in verses 4 and 5. The word follow. This is profound to me. Um, there are people in this room who just have amazing giftings. I won't ask you to raise your hands. But you have some incredible talents and giftings. And it is easy for you or easy for me to simply lead according to my gifting or my talents. What I'm good at. The knowledge I've acquired. The thing that comes naturally to me. But what Jesus teaches here. Look in verse 4. And when he brings out his own sheep. He goes where? Before them. And the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Church family, we must follow Jesus before we can effectively lead others. We must follow Jesus before we can effectively lead others. And here's why. Not because we're not good at whatever it is that God's gifted us with. But the problem is, is that ends in self-worship. But when we follow Jesus first and then we lead others down the same path that we're headed. Glory comes to Christ instead of ourselves. The religious leaders thought they were the door. They thought they held the keys to heaven. They held the law of Moses in high esteem. The problem was is they not only held the law of Moses in high esteem, but they added to the law. And then they made themselves the gatekeepers of whether someone was worthy or unworthy. And who was worthy? Them alone. Therefore, they did not understand. Because they were blind. Church family, I want to encourage you. Follow leaders who follow Jesus. Not just from the pulpit on a Sunday morning. Look at their family, their marriages. Look at the way they order food when you go out to tacos. Look at the way they treat people outside the church walls. Be mindful. Is this a business? They making money to purchase their second or third home? Is this a stepping stone? Want to get to a bigger church? More people? More glory? The shepherd who owns his own sheep is a shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. Circle the word own in verse 3 and 4. I can remember sometimes younger, younger in our parenting where 
we were at a store and one of the kids flipped out and you literally are like, that's not my child. And the kid's like, daddy! And you're like, no, 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 it's still not my child. You don't want to take ownership. And look at verses three and four. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls what? His own. And here's what I love. He doesn't call us when we're all cleaned up and looking good. He calls us when we're a mess. In our lowest point. And he goes, she's mine. He's mine. I take ownership of them. They're my kids. This is your life if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. He owns you. Not in a sense of some iron fist like you better do what I say own. But taking ownership of I will meet the needs that you have. I will love you at your lowest points. Even when you're faithless, I will remain faithful. And I will continue to pursue you. Because I am a good shepherd. This is what Jesus is trying to bring to the attention of the religious leaders of his day. But alas, they do not see and understand. Matthew chapter 15 verse 14 says this. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Do not follow blind leaders. And do not become a blind leader who leads others into a ditch. We must first follow Jesus before we can effectively lead others. Still with me, church family? John chapter 10, verse 7. Then Jesus said to them again, because they didn't get it the first time. Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Anyone who ever says, well, Jesus didn't really claim to be God. Baloney! The sheep pen thing. We just put the picture up there and Jesus says, I am the door. Might as well say, I am the Messiah. I am the King of Kings. I am the Son of God. Verse 8, all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Here's what in and out is. It's not the burger place, although it can be part of that. Here's what in and out is. In and out is going to soccer practice and coming back, going to the grocery store and coming back, going to work. And coming home after a hard day. Changing diapers. Cooking food. For thankless little children who never say, thank you mom. That is the going in and out. And notice that Jesus says. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And will go in and out and find pasture. In and out. Meaning. Within the fold of Jesus is the good shepherd. That wherever you go, he leads. And then he brings you back for protection. And then he sends you out to find green pasture. And then he brings you back in for protection. This is who Jesus is. Verse 10. The thief does not come to except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Uh, this is interesting. We always assume that this verse is talking about who? Satan, because that's how it's usually quoted. Now, I want you to know, it does apply to Satan because he is these things. 
He is someone who wants to steal and kill and destroy. But that's not the primary context of who's being talked about here. Who is Jesus talking about? Holy moly. False teachers of religious law play the part, who say the words, who do all the right strokes, but their hearts are far from God for self-glory. They eat the sheep instead of feed the sheep. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. When Jesus says that he is the door, John 14, 6 probably can't be any clearer that he is the way to salvation. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That means he is the door, him and him alone. Not any other religious leader, not any guru, not the Pope, nobody. Christ and Christ alone. How do we know to beware of false teachers? What do we look for? Here are a couple of things for you. Beware of false teachers who claim authority by self-promotion. Who claim authority by self-promotion, meaning, hey, look at my education. I'm qualified for this. Look at my status. Look at my gifting. Look at my talent. Look at my social media following. I have this many followers on Instagram or TikTok. And I think, church family, we probably know and recognize these things, but how many of us find ourselves listening to these people on repeat over and over and over again throughout the week? Mindlessly watching 10 minutes, then all of a sudden 45 minutes, and then two hours, you're steeped in conspiracy, thinking that this is happening over here, and that Jesus will definitely come back at this time, When Matthew 24 says, no one knows the day or the hour. Beware of false teachers who use you for personal gain, who have their own personal agenda, that aren't taking the time to equip you for the work of the ministry, that aren't taking the time to disciple you through God's word, but instead are using you to accomplish maybe even good things. Show up, do this in the community, but you're not being discipled. who use you for personal gain, asking for money in order to build themselves up, to get themselves more possessions, to grow their own accounts. Beware of false teachers who use you for personal gain to where they walk around wanting to be esteemed and praised. You remember the religious leaders of Jesus' day? He accused them of, You say these long prayers and you wear these things in the marketplaces for what purpose? To receive the praises of man. Beware of false teachers who focus on sound bites and not God's word. Verse by verse teaching. It's not the only type of teaching. Um, Hey, this is a topical message we're doing today, but we're doing what? We're going verse by verse through scripture. Because when we end up getting soundbite messages, here's what it looks like. Hey, I want you to be lions, not sheep. How many of you are ready to get behind that at first, at first listening? You're like, yeah, I am a lion. I don't want to be a sheep. Except for John 9 and John 12, John 14 and John 15 and 
Psalm 23, and it sounds good, but where's its substance? Is it rooted in the word of God? Or is it rooted in the arrogance of man? And the popularity of what's popular? You see, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they used a lot of sound bites. They used the law. And there were good things about the law. But the problem was, is they didn't teach the whole scriptures, which taught about the expectation of a coming Messiah who would be a suffering servant in Isaiah 53. In Psalm 22, they missed the heart of God, that the law was never to save them. That's what God did. If you were with us in Exodus for men's and women's ministry, Moses tells the people, be still. And watch the salvation of the Lord. You can't do it, but he can. The law was never meant to save us. And yet in sound bites, it became something that sounded like that was the way to get to heaven. Just to be good enough. Just to try harder. Just to please this pastor or this Pharisee or this man. Beware of false teachers. So what does this look like in contrast with Jesus? Here's what it looks like in verse 10. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more what? Abundantly. Jesus came to give you an abundant life. Jesus came to give you an abundant life. Now that may not sound profound, but here's the thing. Do we actually believe that? Do you believe that Jesus came to give you an abundant life? Not just in heaven, which is coming and is true, but now. Think about this. That blind man on the side of the road, begging for money, probably unkept, a sore on society. You think he believed God had an abundant life planned for him? I'm making an assumption, probably not. But when Christ comes in and does a work to give us spiritual sight, we begin to see things differently. Here is what it looks like to have an abundant life. You have a large territory to roam in as a sheep. You have a large territory to roam in as a sheep. What in the world does that mean? It looks like this. When you come on Sundays during worship or maybe during the message or maybe in fellowship, you're like, oh man, I just, I love this place. I love Jesus. And then you go back to your apartment or you go back to your house. You go back to work on Monday and you're like, I want that same feeling. And the beauty is, is that God doesn't just deal in feelings. He deals in truth. And an abundant life looks like that when you go to work, now you have purpose. You are to act with dignity and excellence and to be an integrous person. But you're to do those no longer to build yourself up, but to point people to Jesus Christ. It changes the entire trajectory of why you respond and behave the way you do. And in marriage and in parenting, and in your neighborhood, and when you're alone, to where now everywhere that you roam, those are the areas that God desires for you to have an abundant life. An abundant life looks like a desire to give rather than to receive. That may sound cliche as we come up to the Christmas season, but this is who Jesus is. What, did he, what could he gain from us when he left heaven to come to earth? Nothing. 
because he found it better to give of his own life, to lay his own life down. And it brought him joy to obey his father's will. And here's what I know. When you hand a five-year-old something to give to somebody else, and they give it, and it's exciting for that person, where does that five-year-old that just gave it come back to? They come right back to you, and what do they ask for? Do you have anything else for me to give? And this is what it looks like to live in an abundant life, that whatever God gives us, whether it be gifts or talents or resources or abilities or time, that as we give that away in Jesus' name, what does God want to do in our life? Give us more. Not for ourselves. Not to build our own empires, but to do what? To continue to give it away. This is why he gives his church gifts. Every individual. An abundant life looks like a place of protection. It is a dark world. Ephesians chapter 5 says the days are evil. Walk circumspectly. Walk carefully. But you have a place of protection. A place to come back to. Jesus stands between us and the enemy. I cannot get this image out of my head from the Exodus study. Of the pillar of cloud and fire resting between God's people and the Egyptian army. Appearing as a darkness to the Egyptians. And a light to the Israelites. God is in the in-between. Keeping us from the enemy's hand. Protecting us. When we're tempted to sin, we can run to him in prayer or to his word. And there is no temptation that can overcome us. When we are sick and beyond repair for a body that is corrupt and dying, we're reminded in Romans 8 that nothing can snatch us out of his hand. Nothing can separate us from his love. An abundant life looks like a servant leader who empowers others. Who becomes a builder of men and women and children. Seeking to invest in their lives instead of just building our own giant homes. In all of this, this is the abundant life that Jesus has for us. So that when he says in verse 10, I have come to give life and to give it abundantly. This is what it looks like. Beyond possessions and money. That's small-minded compared to what God desires to use us for. And it doesn't mean he can't use those things, but that's just scratching the surface. Consider this abundant life in Psalm 23. You guys know the verse well, I'm sure. Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3. Let's read it together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You know what I love about this? Look at the language. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. This is what a good shepherd does is goes out ahead of his sheep. Not behind. Not just opens the gate and lets them run wild. He goes ahead. And then the best part of this verse to me is found at the end of verse 3. For whose namesake? For his. Which means even if I'm a bad boy and I mess up, he does this 
for His glory, not mine. This is the good shepherd that we have been given. Verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the father knows me, even so I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my father loves me. Because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. In contrast to being aware of false teachers, here's what it looks like to be led by the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd desires an abiding relationship with you. John 15. He is the vine and we are the branches. We are to abide in him as he abides in us. Jesus desires an actual relationship with you. Not rule following, not piety, not 70% of the time. He wants an in-depth relationship with you. He knows you because he takes ownership of you. He knows each one of his sheep by name. If we go back to verse 3 in John chapter 10. It says he knows them by name. He knows how many hairs are upon your head, which for some of you is phenomenal. (laughs) He knows your thoughts before you think them. He knows what you need before you need it. He desires an abiding relationship with you. And that comes through his word, through prayer, and through being a part of his people. Serving others instead of yourself. The good shepherd seeks to save the lost. Notice in verse 16, Jesus says, hey, there are some who are not yet of this fold that I'm going to bring into the fold. And there will be one shepherd and one flock. Jesus is speaking prophetically about the Gentile nations, the non-Jewish nations, the, what most of us are being grafted in and brought into the promise, the covenant of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus seeks to save the lost. When you think of the lost in your life, do you cringe? Or are you prayerful? Do you avoid it? Or do you ask God for opportunities to minister to those who are lost? And lastly, the good shepherd lays down his life for you. Um, I love this. Jesus is certainly speaking prophetically. He already knows what's coming He knows why he has been sent into the world, not to condemn it, but to save it. That he would be the propitiation for mankind, the sacrifice, the once and for all substitute that we needed to cover our sins for eternity. And as the accuser, Satan, night and day stands before God, accusing you in your sinfulness, me and my wickedness, Jesus intercedes at the right hand of the Father on our behalf, continuing to give us his life. She's mine. He's mine. They belong to me. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. This is what the good shepherd does. This is who he is. 
Verse 19, therefore, there was a division among the Jews, meaning the religious leaders, because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Church family, who is Jesus to you today? Not in theory, not on paper. Who is he to you in your daily life? When you're troubled, when you're fearful, when you're rejoicing, when you have abundance, when you have little. There is division that is caused. He is either the king of kings and the savior of the world. Or you worship someone else. And here's what I would encourage us today. Because of what Christ has done, because he is the good shepherd, when we have gratitude in our life, we are able to see the works of God in all circumstances. Gratitude allows you to see the works of God in all circumstances. I know some of you are suffering. Christ suffered on your behalf. Rejoice in the price that he paid and that you get a small taste of who your Savior is. Some of you are wondering if relationships can be repaired. There's nothing outside of the work that God can do through his son, Jesus Christ. Literally the one who called the blind beggar, the Christian killer, the prostitute into his kingdom to repair that relationship between the father and that individual. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.